Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. Our next guest is a, a gentleman who's written more than 50 books, some of them under other people's names other than his own. Some of the novels under his own name include The Bad Place, Watchers, Mr. Murder, Intensity, and his new novel, Soul Survivor. The books depict a variety of human conditions and also deal with some of the political problems of our time in the format of the compelling thriller. Will you please welcome author Dean Kuntz to West Coast Live. I understand that when you've interviewed yourself, you've described the meaning of life as having something to do with chips and salsa? Uh, I said the meaning of life, uh, I was asked what the meaning of life was. I said it's that we have all the salsa and chips we can eat and then it's time to move on. That's what we're here for. Just the salsa and chips? Just the salsa and chips and maybe a bottle of Corona now and then. (laughs) Along the way though, uh, you you write tales that uh, depict uh, human suffering and eventually triumph over human suffering. Uh, I think fiction is to be about things that we all share and try to make us all one community. And one thing we all share is suffering. That's the human condition. And we triumph over it, and that's also the human condition. So that's a key to what I like to write about. One of the uh, the challenges in your own life was was your decision to be a writer, and you gave yourself a certain amount of time. What, five years to do it at some point in your life? Uh, it was, it was uh, more weighty than that. Uh, I, was, I was working a job I didn't care for, and my wife gave me five years, and she, <laughs> she said, I'll support you for five years, and if you can't make it in five years, uh, you'll never make it. And that put the pressure on me, and uh, it worked. And so uh, how are you doing nowadays? Uh, still married to the same wonderful woman 31 years later. Good, and and you have a and you're no longer in a house trailer and uh, we gave up the house trailer last week, yeah. but uh, <laughs> what what leads you to write under a pseudonym? Uh, I had a lot of bad agenting advice. I mean, that's something I know you'd be shocked to hear. Um, <laughs> agents are generally geniuses, and every uh, but I was doing different types of books under different styles, and the wisdom was that well, if you're doing different genres and different styles, you always have to have a different identity. And so every time I would deliver a book, it would be different because I can't stand to do the same thing over and over. And they would give me a new name. And, uh, but I've been through therapy, and now I'm one person again. <laughs> Did your therapist charge you for each one of your pseudonyms? <laughs> it, it was a horrendous bill. <laughs> your, your new book uh, is, is one that has uh, a terrifying uh, premise at the beginning, a, a, a man uh, loses his uh, his wife and two children in a plane crash that carries with him some 300 other souls. And then he starts getting weird sensations that something may not have been all that was uh, readily known about the plane crash, that maybe there wasn't something as straightforward uh, about it as possible. When you fly, is, is crashing in a plane a fantasy of yours, a fear of yours? Uh, I don't fly. After a bizarre experience a number of years ago, I had a very bad flight, so I said, that's it. It was a very, very turbulent flight, and uh, I was sitting in the plane, and it was a commuter plane. And they were about a reasonably good-sized commuter plane, and uh, turbulence got very bad, and I had a newspaper with me, and I said, well, I'll just read the comics and the horoscope and stuff to take my mind off this. And I opened the newspaper to the horoscope, and the horoscope said, your long-planned journey will end in an unexpected destination. Uh, <laughs> And I thought, yes, a toxic waste dump outside Newark. Uh, 
and uh, there was uh, a, a great deal of uh, uh, consternation on the plane. I've said that there was actually a nun screaming, we're all going to die, and you, you know you're in trouble then. Uh, so. So that, uh, that changed your life. So it was very easy for you to fantasize the horrors of a plane wreck. It was, yes. I've, I've, uh, I, I got off that one and um, felt that uh, I shouldn't get back on. As, in fact, as we were coming in toward a landing, I looked out the window and there was this gremlin-like creature, really hideous, tearing the engine plate <laughs> cover off the plane. And, and I really started sweating. I was screaming at him, you want William Shatner, not me. Uh, uh, but we landed safely, and that's it. I haven't flown since. So I have this, this, uh, this feeling about the subject, and I probably write a little better about it because of that. But you don't mind what sending your manuscripts uh, via air across the country to your editors? We say a small player, prayer. We put it with Federal Express, yeah. and we hope for the best. The, uh, the, one of the, the, the threads in your book is that you not only take on individual human suffering and, and, and dealing with those issues of... of um, of, of really oppression, of terror, of paranoia, but also you take on sort of larger political issues as well, the implications of, of conspiracy, of, of large government uh, uh, observation of our life. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a political intent with your writing as well, it seems to me. Uh, I have uh, tremendous faith in people as individuals, and, uh, and uh, when they set out to help one another, uh, which I think is, is basically what human beings, uh, most I believe most human beings are decent people and they try to help other people and do the best. Uh, I'm not a negativist. This, the, I'm, uh, part of the reason I wrote this book is we're living here toward the millennium, and there's so much stuff about the millennium, so many books, so many TV shows, so many movies coming, and they're all dark and dreary and say we're all doomed and we're all, our, our civilization is terrible, and I think just the opposite, that we're uh, moving toward a brighter and better day, and I wanted to say that in this book. There's, a, uh, there's an introduction that I'd like to ask you about here, uh, an acknowledgment. It says here, the real Barbara Chrisman won a prize for the use of her name in this novel. Considering that she was one of a hundred booksellers involved in the lottery, I am surprised by the way in which her name resonates in this particular story. She was expecting to be portrayed as a psychotic killer. Instead, she'll have to settle for being a quiet heroine. Sorry, Barbara. So is she disappointed that she uh, got portrayed in a different light? Well, I, 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 uh, this was a, a party for booksellers, and that's what I promised them. And when I told her, well, it changed a little. You're now a a sort of heroic figure, she said, oh, no. Uh, and I thought, hmm, this speaks to the darker side of human desire. <laughs> in, in, the, uh, in, in the resonance of this, I mean, her, the, the last name is Christman or Christman. It, it's very strange to me, because the book, while not a, a religious book in the terms of any organized religion, the book is about faith. And so it was very odd that her name should, uh, she should have been one out of these 100 people, uh, because her name has certain resonances for the role she has. The, uh, the character in this book uh, is, a, uh, is a reporter. He's been sort of hiding out since uh, the death of his family and has been kind of going downhill. But something suddenly sparks his, uh, his interest in, and he wants to uh, reopen an investigation into uh, this. I'd like to hear you read a bit from, from your story, Soul Survivor, here, uh, where Joe has uh, gone back into his newspaper office, sort of snuck back in to use the, uh, the database. Okay, I will simply say, as slight prep, um, that Joe, a year after his wife and two daughters have died in this crash, is in deep in grief and, and really waiting to die. He's quit his job. 
Um, and he goes to the cemetery at the year anniversary, and it takes a lot of courage for him to go. And he sees a woman photographing the graves with a Polaroid camera, and he says to her, what are you doing here? And she says, I'm not ready to talk to you yet. Uh, after that, he discovers that she is a person claiming to be the sole survivor of the crash, but there was not supposedly any survivors at all. So the thought is in the back of his mind that if there could have been one survivor, maybe there could have been others, and what is the true story of this? So he begins to investigate that. Um, when Joe finished sorting and stapling the printouts, he noticed the white envelope that Dewey Bemis had given him at the elevator downstairs. Joe had propped it against a box of Kleenex to the right of the computer and promptly forgotten about it. As a crime reporter with a frequently seen byline, he had from time to time received story tips from newspaper readers who, to put it charitably, were not well glued together. They earnestly claimed to be terrified victims of vicious harassment by a secret cult of Satanists operating in the city's parks department, or to know of sinister tobacco industry executives who were plotting to lace baby formula with nicotine, <laughs> or to be living across the street from a nest of spider-like extraterrestrials trying to pass as a nice family of Korean immigrants. <laughs> Once, when cornered by a pinwheeled-eyed man who insisted that the mayor of Los Angeles was not human but a robot controlled by the audio-animatronics audio department at Disneyland, <laughs> Joe had lowered his voice and said with nervous sincerity, yes, we've known about that for years. But if we print a word of it, the people at Disney will kill us all. <laughs> he had spoken with such conviction that the nutball had exploded backward and fled. Consequently, he was expecting a crayon-sprawled message about evil psychic Martians living among us as Mormons, or the equivalent. He tore open the envelope. It contained a single sheet of white paper folded in thirds. The three neatly typed sentences initially impressed him as a singularly cruel variation on the usual paranoid shriek. I've been trying to reach you, Joe. My life depends on your discretion. I was aboard Flight 353. Everyone aboard the airliner had perished. He didn't believe in ghost mail from the other side, which probably made him unique among his contemporaries in this new age city of angels. At the bottom of the page was a name, Rose Tucker. Under the name was a phone number with a Los Angeles area code. No address was provided. Lightly flushed by the same anger that had burned so hotly in him earlier and which could easily become ablaze again, Joe almost snatched up the phone to call Mrs. Tucker. He wanted to tell her what a disturbed and vicious piece of garbage she was, wallowing in her schizophrenic fantasies, psychic vampires sucking on the misery of others to feed some sick need of her own. And then he heard in memory the words that Wallace Blick first said to him in the cemetery. Unaware that anyone was in the white van, Joe had leaned through the open passenger door and popped the glove box in search of a cellular phone. Blick, briefly mistaking him for one of the men in the Hawaiian shirts, had said, did you get Rose? Rose. And so he begins, I mean, I, I found that I got little shivers throughout the point of the book as these little revelations sort of came about, these little self-realizations. How far ahead uh, of the reader do you want to stay in your books? Uh, sometimes it's, it's good if the reader knows something that the character doesn't, and then you get a certain suspense. But generally, I like the reader to be just uh, right with the character, or half step back, as the character is just about to make a revelation. The reader is just trailing him slightly, and it becomes a shock. Um, Stephen King uh, once said in a, in a conversation with him that he loved going to movie theaters uh, and hearing people in the theater shout out at the screen that if somebody was going up the stairs, the music was getting a little tense and suspect, and you knew that something evil was behind the door. You heard people in the audience go, yo, don't open that door, you know, <laughs> that, that you want the audience to like jump out of the seat and, and participate in the story. Uh, it's worth it, worse than that with me. I'm sitting there writing it. I know it's a story. I'm making it up, and I talk out loud to him. Uh, don't do that. Uh, my wife walks by the door, looks in. It's only me in there, but... Uh.
or it's me and all those pseudonyms. We're getting back in touch with each other. <laughs> uh, you, you describe uh, human passion. I mean, for instance, Joe is, is very angry and he feels this, this rage. I mean, there's, a, there's a, a, an emotional verisimilitude that you bring to it. You sit at the typewriter and find yourself actually getting angry at, at points? You can get angry. You can, uh, a lot of people ask me, do you scare yourself? That's very difficult to do. You can do it sometimes. But what you can do uh, is you can get yourself other ways emotionally. Uh, if a character uh, has a tremendous emotional moment or, or a, an important character that you've come to love dies, you can find yourself sitting there with tears running down your face while you're writing that death. It something, says something a lot about fiction, because every, I know this is not a real person, and this is not a real situation. Readers respond the same way, though. I've had many readers say, I cried in this book, or I, I cried, and two pages later I was laughing. Uh, and we know this is not a real story, and yet we fall away into it. And it says something inter interesting about our need for stories. What, uh, what do you do to... Um distract yourself from a book project? Do you, do you read? Do you have different kinds of dreams? Do you, do you read uh, the poetry of, of uh, John Donne or something? Uh, <laughs> I, uh, gee, what, I, I don't like to be distracted. Uh, I put in like 10 and 11 hour sessions while I'm uh, writing and I kind of live that book. I'm a people person. I like people and being among them. Worst thing of what I do is sitting in a room alone most of my working life. Uh, but when I do it, I find that if I isolate myself to some degree during the project, then the characters become really real because they're the people I see most of the time. So I don't get a whole lot of distraction. I kind of fall away into it. There's uh, some sort of high-tech awareness in this book of, um, of surveillance and, and of, uh, of a... Um, uh, and do you keep up reading in, in trade journals of, of one kind or another to, to be aware of unusual technological developments that you might weave in as plot points? Uh, when I was a kid in college and high school, I really hated research, just despised it. So when I would have a report to do, I would make up footnotes and make up the sources. And, uh, Your f fiction career started early. Yes. yes. <laughs> and uh, it amazes me now that this is one of the things I love most about what I do, is learning about different things. And in this particular book, I had to learn a lot about uh, air crash scene investigation. And it's a fascinating subject, and the people who do it are tr doing a terrible, terrible job, and they do it very admirably. And uh, so it's interesting. Well, it's a terrible, ter it's not a terrible, terrible job they do, but that's an interesting, I just. Oh, I see, I, I see. I just. They do a wonderful job, <laughs> but it's, it's a very, very difficult <laughs> job. They Have you been to the site of a, of a plane crash yourself as part of the research? No, I wouldn't be able to handle that, but um, uh, it, it's, it's a pretty horrific situation. Uh, when, when you're working, do you, do you find that uh, uh, at night, you have either nightmares or dreams where you work out some plot uh, issues or other issues that come up for you in the, in the course of the book? Uh, I used to dream a lot when I was a kid. Uh, as an adult, I don't seem to dream very much. I think it's because I do this all day, and I'm working out all of my stuff on the page. It's why I'm such a sane, balanced, rational human being. <laughs> uh. What uh, you, you must get a range not only of... of uh, adoring fan mail, but also kind of like weird crank mail. We get about, I think it's up to 12,000 letters a year now, and uh, I kind of read all of them, but I can't answer all of them. Uh, but it's most people wouldn't believe this, but I say 11,990 of them are, are very nice letters from very nice people. And then you get 
once in a while, very strange mail, sort of like what Joe talks about in that scene, the, the person who will write you a letter and say, uh, it'll sometimes seem very ordinary, and you'll get about halfway through it about how much I like your books, and then you'll get to a point where it says, and because I know we've had both had the same experience, you have been to the same mothership I have, and then, <laughs> then it deteriorates. <laughs> I, I think on the, uh, the internet there's a, there's a question I think that you even ask yourself of whether you've been captured by an alien ship. Uh, well, I believe I was captured by aliens at one time. You know, some of these, they block it from your memory, but uh, <laughs> they were very nice to me. They, they took me to a Barbara Streisand concert <laughs> and then out to Cleveland for a dinner. Uh, but uh, uh, they were nice aliens, you know. It's, uh, there's evil aliens and there's nice aliens. Well, you got lucky then. I did. I got nice aliens. They didn't give me a proctological examination. <laughs> you know, that, that's what they always do. Everyone who gets abducted reports having a proctological exam. Can you imagine if these guys come from across the universe to get, see what this says about human beings and how egotistical we are? There's this great superior intelligence and it comes across the universe. And it wants to take a look at one of our most important aspects of our humanness. Yes, I can tell yes. You. yes. <laughs> well, Dean Kuntz, thank you very much for stopping by here on West Coast Live. Thank you. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here. And we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.